HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and this is coming to you from Bushwick, Brooklyn, um, Heritage Radio Network, and In the Drink airs live at 10 a.m. on uh, Wednesdays, um, from, like I said, from here in Bushwick at Roberta's. And when I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at one of our restaurants. I'm the beverage director of Delanima, Lartuzzi, La Picho, and Anfora in uh, New York City's uh, kind of downtown area of Manhattan. Um, I'm excited today. We have a uh, uh, several guests on the show today, and the topic is going to be the um, uh, recent invasion of California with Italian grape varieties. Um, there was a time when in California there were many, many different grapes that, that were grown. Uh, there was no sort of clear favorite as to what was the first, but through a, a different variety of forces, um, partially it being the, uh, the the judgment of Paris tasting in 1976 when uh, Cabernet and Chardonnay won uh, both of those, and then certainly forces of uh, several uh, several journalists really falling in love with with these grapes. The 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 variety of Italian grapes in California decreased over years and the variety of grapes from all over the world decreased to the point where it was really just Pinot Noir uh, and really Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon predominantly, maybe secondary Pinot Noir and, and Merlot and some Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, but what's really exciting that's going on now is that growers are embracing grapes from all over the world. Um, and today we have two, uh, two producers here who are really embracing Italian grapes. Um, we have uh, Ryan and Megan Glob from uh, Glab. Glab. Damn it, I did this right before <laughs> the show. Glab. They're not Globby, they're Glad. They're Glab uh, from Rhyme. Uh, I love these wines. We have them at, uh, at Lepicho. Um, they're, they're working with 
coastal Italian grapes. Um, I was thinking about this on the way over that you guys have um, you guys have Fiano um, and Alianico from the Campania coast, Vermentino, which you see on the coast of uh, of certainly Tuscany and Liguria, and then a little bit of Ribola, which is on the the coast of uh, Friuli, maybe a little bit further inland. And then, um, and then we have Sam Bilbro from Idlewild, who's working predominantly with uh, Piemontese grapes. Um, so very exciting to have you guys here. Thank you so much for, for coming to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, sorry for that extra long introduction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us, a, just get the quick rundown of how, how you guys started? Um, I kind of think of the producers that are doing really exciting things in California um, as falling into one of three categories. Either they're the producers who have always been making more elegant and, and uh, uh, balanced food-friendly wines, and they, they, they never change it. They've been around for a while, and that's a very small amount. Uh, producers who are making kind of bigger, more full-bodied, oaky or alcoholic wines, and then have scaled things back um, as, as tastes have changed. And then new producers who've got into it and are making these really delicious food friendly interesting wines and i think all you guys would fall into uh into that that third category yeah absolutely i mean i think um for us it was just about um making wines that we were excited about um not necessarily uh out there to make italian varieties but that's what we're drawn to and what we love um and uh you know for us Wines about sitting down and eating and drinking with your friends and making wines that's, that suit that. Um, I agree yeah. with that. I started on the, um, actually more on the sales side and was slowly but surely disenchanted with everything about that. And when thinking about producing wine, it was, well, this stuff sells, but I don't like this stuff. Mm. Why do I want to do this? And that was the desire for so long was to get into production and it never set in. I never did it until I finally said, well, screw it. I'm just going to make what I like and love and I'll probably never go anywhere, but I'll be happy doing it. And, and Sam, when you first got into it, what would, what were the wines that you were interested in and, and that you loved? And why did you think, I mean, wine is an agricultural product and, um, I really love, you know, uh, some obscure Jura grapes. And certainly there are like Trousseau is, is kind of having a moment in California, but, how did you know that these grapes would do well in California, and how did you match the site to uh, to that? Sure. Um, once you decide you're going to do something like this, then you, I mean, start Googling everything you can. You start looking at crush reports. You start researching every little detail because you're never going to have the same overlaps, but how can you find some overlaps? And so you start at least drawing some connection to the, the origins. I mean, simple stuff like there's... I'm, I don't want to go down to, to Paso Robles, but if you want, you know, limestone or at least calcareous-based soils, that's where you go. But that's not where I was going to go. So, okay, well, what else is in Piedmont besides that? Oh, there's a lot of sandstone. Well, and we can find that. So you start finding your overlaps and then digging in. And For you, was it more of a uh, function of finding similar soils where you knew that those grapes would do well? Or was it more about the, the climate, the amount of hours of sunlight or, or rain? Uh both, I think, at least a commonality in both areas. Um, per, I work predominantly out of Mendocino County for the Piedmont varietals, and uh, and at first it didn't seem like it would work, but then you start looking into more uh, the specific details. So this vineyard that I work from is basically a north-facing slope in a warm area. 
So I don't have the Alps sending down cool air, but I have a north-facing slope kind of mitigating the direct heat, and that's the same kind of the same end result gotten to from a very different way, but in the end we're not there, so why should we pretend we're there? We should be finding something similar where we are. Now, Ryan, uh, and I, I just found this out yesterday. I'm, I know I'm probably super late to the game, but the, the name Ryan is uh, the uh, uh, combination of Ryan and Megan. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the name Ryan is a combination of Ryan and Megan. Um, and uh, so you have the, they're a married couple, and it's half and half. So I said your, your winery is relatively new, started in 2007, but you guys aren't new to the game. You've both worked at wineries. Um, really all around the world. Can you tell us about how your past experience has influenced um, what you're doing? And it seems that that the wines that you're making, especially the skin macerated Ribola and Vermentino, are kind of a departure from, from wines you've made in the past. Yeah, we... Um, let's see, Megan and I met uh, working together in Australia. Um, so, like you said, we've both worked around the industry for the last... 15 years or so in different uh, different facets. Um, met working together in Australia. Uh, really si- share a similar passion in wines. Um, always been drawn to Italian wines, uh, Italian food and culture, um, just a dynamic, kind of diverse uh, culture of Italy. We've just, um, it's always been a very special thing for us. And uh, so when we started making wines, we started with... Uh, Start with Alianico in 2007, more of a experimental um, small project. Uh, some friends of ours farming the the vineyard down south in uh, Paso Robles, um, and our wines kind of grew organically from there. Never having, at least not starting out with a um, a real mass solid master plan, but uh, um, we're slow, slowly finding little pockets. Uh, um, uh, different varieties um california is such a diverse um climate uh and geology that uh um there's tons of room for experimentation for yeah and for you and for for everyone here how important is it for you to find growers who are currently working with these grapes um and then working with them to to source fruit and uh are you also planting some uh some grapes yourselves both. I mean, I think you start with what's in the ground because, I mean, the simple math of time and money and, you know, to make it happen to plant a vineyard and to do it on something that isn't tested yet. It's hard to kind of get over that initial nugget. But if you uh, can find a spot that feels right, start there. But then I think all of us long term have hopes of seeing our own plantings in the ground with as we drill down further into what's actually working and why these work wherever they work. Sam, can you kind of talk us through the difference between how long it would take and how much it would kind of cost to plant a vineyard from scratch versus grafting over from some vines that are already there versus buying grapes or working with a grower who's who's already producing? How do you make the decision to do one of those three things? Sure. The, well, just the difference between the three. If you go to someone who's already growing grapes and it's an established vineyard and you can get the fruit, that's year one, you're buying it, you're making it. Depending on what it is, that's however long before you can release it. If you're going to graft, you have a minimum of one year before that's going to turn into a viable fruit um, before you can then pick. But really, I, I would look at those two years. If you're planting, you probably have a year of development. You have three years before you're going to be able to pick fruit. 
probably five years before you're going to get the fruit you really want. It's just a simple game of time. I think the biggest thing for all of us is, uh, you know, um, young in California, land is incredibly expensive. Um, So, you know, actually going in there, owning your own, putting in the vines um, is just not a viable thing for us uh, newbies. And, um, you know, for Rhyme, we have been lucky in that when we're looking at grape growing reports and finding these varieties that we're really excited about, the biggest thing is making sure it's in a spot that is conducive to that variety. And we have been able to find those plantings. And what's really exciting is having these growers who've put it in and are behind it, even though they could get more money for a a different variety in that spot. So for example, George Bear, Cabernet in uh, the Okanoa district of Napa Valley could command, you know, 8,000 a ton. Instead he has Rebolo Giala. So these are all passion projects. Um, which is, I think, really exciting. And I can second that, too, with Fox Hill, where I get all the Piedmontese varietals. It's not the same economics as my nap, as an app by any means, but selling a wide spectrum of Italian varietals out in Mendocino doesn't make, you know, economically or, you know, any of that much sense, but Lowell loved it. Lowell went to Italy and on a random whim, because he was actually going to Finland to find his family roots and ended up in Italy instead and came back with cuttings and said, I like this. And I want to do it. Wow. That's that's special, just like what George Ver, George Ver did. And Megan, I know you that you knew uh, George Ver personally. I don't know what if you can kind of talk about the influence that that he had. Um, I, I've spoken with Abe Schoner, uh, and he, he talks from the Scolian Project very uh, affectionately about how George brought them brought him on a trip to Friuli and was just a, a great proponent of uh, of Italian grapes in California. But if you have an anecdote about George, you'd like to share, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> no, I, I think anybody who knew George, um, you know, automatically fell in love with him. He's just a really, really great guy and really kind. And, um, you know, the, I think the Vare project um, has been really special. You know, there's seven of us producers making the Robolo from there. And, again, he could have he could have been putting in Cabernet or something else, and instead he... He went over to uh, to Friuli and brought back cuttings from from uh, Grafner and put it in, and it's it's exciting to see his legacy continue. And now Steve Mathiason is farming it, and and we'll we'll continue it. Oh, that's great to hear that it's in uh, good hands, good stewardship. Um, we're actually going to take a very quick break, um, but we'll be back more with. Um, the uh, producers who are making some of the best Italian grape varieties in California right after the short break. This one's called Kill Me in the Summertime by the Dead Stars. This is In the Drink. was brought to you by visitnapavalley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital, where the art of living well is defined and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, 
lived in a place where tables are set with care. Fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, visitnapavalley.com, or stop by Napa County's official visitor information center, located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street, Napa, and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com. All right, we're back with uh, Rhyme uh, Vineyard and Idlewild uh, making some really, truly beautiful Italian grape varieties in California. Um, Ryan, can you tell us about the two Vermentinos that you make? I think this is such a, an interesting uh, uh, project that you guys work on. Uh, I, there have been countless guests that we've, uh, we've served, the his and hers Vermentinos, uh, too. And uh, I'll tell you, our guests really love it. Uh, I, I love the wines. But how did that come about? Thank you. Um, I guess the real—I mean, we love Vermentino. It's such a—I mean, it's a can be a beautiful, delicate, aromatic, um, just incredibly fun to drink wine. Um, does really well in California climate, and uh, I think there's um, there's a lot of people talking about about planting more and more Vermentino in California right now. Um, I guess the real inspiration, I think, to me at least. Um, for this, for the wine, uh, for making Vermentino at all, was uh, a wine called Massavecchia in in Tuscany. Um, just an incredibly crazy, beguiling uh, orange wine um, uh, from coastal Tuscany. And uh, in 2009, we started with Ribola Gialla. We're both just crazy orange wines fans. Um, the the wines are um, they go so well with so many foods. Um, really versatile uh, can be um, and as a kind of a counterpoint to the Ribola Gialla uh, Vermentino is kind of the opposite spectrum of orange wine it's it's so um, so exuberant and fun and uh, juicy so that was kind of the idea and found this vineyard beautiful white wine site in, Car- in Carneros and and kind of right before harvest, we realized that Megan and I had completely divergent views on what we envisioned uh, that wine to be. So we and had it, to had to compromise. In, in, and it was like in a working marriage, you know, we're, we're two winemakers is like, you know, uh, two chefs in a kitchen. And we work extremely well together. And this was the first time we disagreed on how we wanted to approach um, a wine. And there's no middle ground, you know, it was either one way or the other. And for sake of... Uh, winery marriage and uh, <laughs> uh continuing together we decided to have our own and they're really you know they're they're uh they're standalone wines they have different places you know the herds is really great bright fresh and good on uh on its own on a hot day where the skim fermented um fermentino is uh you know much more cerebral i think it commands uh food and 
you know, they're fun. The fruit Mm -hmm. comes in on the same day and it's nice to see the same fruit, you know, treated differently. And I think um, we have found that our our customers really enjoy those two wines, particularly because they're, um, you know, a a different style um, with the exact same fruit. Yeah. So the, the fruit is treated the same all year long. And then it comes into the winery, and for the for the hers, you include some stems and no skin. Is that the in the his? We have uh, skin but no stems. Is that accurate? Well, so the hers is more of a traditional white wine. So mm-hmm. in white production, uh, the fruit comes in, you press it off. Um, so you press uh, the juice straight off the, the skins, and then the hers is fermented in a combination of stainless steel and neutral barrel. So fermentation, no no skins, no stems. The his is treated like a red wine, so whole cluster, um, stems included, and then fermented to dryness on the skins. So the, the his would qualify as something that, that you might call an orange wine, um, but what I really love about it is that it's not a, a polarizing orange wine. It's a complete wine that is complex, uh, has great texture, great minerality, um, and, and I think that it's a, a good one too. It's a, and it's an orange wine that I introduce people to the category with, uh, but not as this is lesser orange. So I was like, but this is what orange wine can be for the future. Um, it's it's approachable and, and it's a, a beautiful, really complete wine. And I think that anyone who who makes the argument that inclusion of uh, of skins on white wine somehow detracts from the the wine, uh, I would I would I would show them your wine in in a heartbeat to uh, to counter that uh, that argument. Awesome, that's great. I mean, the the things <clears throat> we value in in wine is the same whether it's white red or orange um we both love wines with a lot of purity um a lot of energy you know plenty of fruit but tension as well um so it's just a matter of uh you make a clean orange wine the same way you make a clean red wine you know and sam tell us a little bit about the seven percent project i was reading that you're a part of sure um there's two ways to talk about this. I'll, I'll introduce 7% as a general theme first and kind of tell where it came from. Um, 7% was is a group of us who all kind of got together to sort of celebrate what's happened in California. And the theme that we were able to tie it around was um, the less common varieties that are now being made and sought out and uh, kind of all banded together to just put on tasting. It was actually meant to be a celebration more than anything else. And Kind of, we're taking it back. We we planned the first event two years ago now, and um, we had one month to throw it, and it was talked about everywhere. And we were, well, we were just having fun with friends. Seven um, percent is a reference to, at the time when we first started, this has now changed, which is I think a great testament to it actually working. But seven percent was seven uh, percent of varieties in the North Coast were anything but the eight most common varieties. Does that make sense? So you know, it's it's a you know, there's thousands of varieties in this world, and 93% of what was planted in the north coast of California was eight varieties. That's crazy. doesn't make any sense if you think about how young California is as a region, and yet we're already focusing on, on eight things. Um, and then the other side of it is it was simply I wanted to taste all these wines and hang out with these people who I liked and uh, get to enjoy that day. So kind of threw it together. Great. And does uh, do you organize taste? What What is the the ongoing functionality of this group? Is this just a, a loose group of friends who kind of share wines, or do you like? Is there, is there something more to it? It's a. Uh, it's definitely an ongoing tasting. We'll mm-hmm. be throwing them uh, once a year. One in Hillsburg always. Then we added San Francisco last year. Um, we will hopefully. The intention is to 
get to New York as well, but when is a question. Uh, maybe next year is the hope. Um, but part of what we all want is it to stay very, very informal, very grassroots, very low-key. It's not... I think I think that celebratory factor is uh, what made it a special tasting. Cool. I'm going to throw this question out to the group. How do you guys all feel about the term Cal Atal? Does this make <laughs> you cringe, uh, or it, it, it's you know, or is it a, a, a fun marketing uh, term that that maybe uh, gets people into the wines? I think definitely cringeworthy. Cringeworthy. <laughs> <laughs> There was a little bit of fiasco in the 90s um, with Napa Valley and Sangiovese. Um, some some beautiful wines, actually. And uh, George Vera uh, owned Luna Vineyards, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, they still make a nice, uh, really nice Sangiovese. Um, but uh, I think people had different, um, uh, different aspirations. I mean, making... Um, I mean, the Super Tuscan thing was really popular... And uh, I think eventually people just decided, like, why do we have San Giovese that tastes like Cabernet? We should just keep making Cabernet. Um, and so I think Italian varieties in California, they still get kind of stigmatized in a way in people's minds. And, uh, and for some reason, that Calatel thing is like the moniker used. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciate about all of your wines is that... Uh, they don't taste exactly like the Italian equivalent. There's uh, an interpretation uh, that is distinctly California, distinctly from, from where, where you're coming from. And I think that that is great because if they tasted just like the Italian version, it would be, why don't you just drink the Italian version? Um, but they, the, the wines are unique. Is that, is that something that you're distinctly, that you're going for? Are you, are you trying to emulate the, the Italian regions? Uh, they're they're purely California wines. I mean, um, you can't help but but compare them to um, what you know whatever a Alianico benchmark is. Or, uh, um, but we love California. California makes amazing wines. We have incredible climate and soils and uh, and people in the wine industry. And that being said, I'd love to taste your Fiano that you brought with us. Uh, this is really exciting for me. I don't, I don't think I've ever had a California Fiano before uh, tasting yours. Where did where did you find these uh, these grapes, and how did this come about? <laughs> um, I you know it, for me Fiano has been an obsession. I really love it, and uh, Fiano um, I think it makes an exciting age worthy white as well. Um, great phenolics. Um, great structure. And so we had been um, uh, looking for some Fiano, and I had a, uh, a friend call and say, you want to come look at a, a, a vineyard that has Fiano planted? And I s- said, yes, where, where is it? And uh, she said, it's up, you know, at the top of Dry Creek Valley. So it was pretty close to home. And um, I think the area is perfect uh, for Fiano, which is a sun-loving variety. And I think that's a, a big key factor here is a lot of these varieties um, uh, are well-suited to our sunny disposition in California. So I uh, went and had a look um, at the vineyard and literally stepped out of the car and was like, we're taking it. I love this. It's amazing. And 
You know, the the vineyard um, owner, uh, he, you know, he's like, oh, I got to give you the caveats. You know, we're we're lucky to get it to 23 bricks in October. Check. Done. Love it. <laughs> um, and then he's like, yeah, and it kind of gets a little bit golden in color. It's a little bit funny how it does that. And I was like, oh, this is, you know, you're singing my song. So he was, he was actually going to graft it over the following year. And we uh, we convinced him not to, and and we're really thrilled and excited with the end result. Yeah. So when tasting the um, Lago Vineyard Fiano, what are how what how do you separate what are some of the grape characteristics and what are the vineyard characteristics, particularly in this wine? If you were to plant uh, Chardonnay or another grape here, what would stick out that is that is particular to this vineyard, and and what what's just from the Fiano? Um, that's a good, um, a good question. Uh, you know, there, it, there is a kind of a, a sunny warmth to, to the, to the wine, you know, um, uh, however, I think what's really great about Fiano again, you know, we're, we're picking this later, uh, in the, in the harvest and it's only 20.8 bricks, um, where if there was another variety, Pinot Noir or even Chardonnay, I think it would fall apart there. Yeah. And you, you know what it- What's reminiscent of other Fianos that, that I really love is just the the ripeness that you get on the nose, uh, the weight on the palate, but at, with a wine that, that is low in alcohol and has really bright acidity and great minerality. Um, that is, I imagine, very hard to get. Uh, and why I think that in those warmer climates and these Italian grapes are just so perfectly suited to it. This, I think this is, a wine like this just fits the sensibility of, of how a lot of people are drinking now, right? This uh, food from my mouth is just watery. I can't even get a sentence out. Thank um, you. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. That's what we love about Italian varieties in, in general is um, they have such a, such a powerful um, kind of acidic and structural um, quality to the wine. So these varieties that are normally grow in, you know, warmer regions, um, you know, Fiano from Campania, um, pretty similar to California and a wine that retains so much of that acidity. Uh, and what I love about this wine and, and I think the real hall- hallmark of Fiano to me is kind of that, that structural quality, the, uh, kind of resinous, smoky, um, really phenolic quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really comes through in this wine. Um, the fruit's a little more front-loaded and um, and uh, kind of in the fruit's a little more intense early on, where I think a friend said it, um, commented on it. I thought it was really appropriate. Is Fianos from Campania can be so backwards early, and then they develop some texture early on. And this one has all the texture to start. I think we'll, we'll just kind of stretch out over time. I... Uh... I, I love the wine. That's all I. That's all I know. Uh, in terms, I mean, I've been to I've been to certain, several vineyards uh, that make Fiano in, in Campania, and um, I think this is you know it it is it's right up there with with the best of them. It's truly a, a, a delicious wine, and with a super long, very mineral uh, finish. I'm still tasting the wine, and my mouth is still watering. Just congratulations! That wine is awesome. Thank uh, you so much. All right, so now we have the Idlewild Barbera in our glass. Um, I, I think you guys could hear. We actually are pouring wine. It's really, it's really <laughs> happening. Um, tell us about the the origin of this one. So, <clears throat> this is uh, all Mendocino County fruit uh, from one vineyard that I work with. Tend pretty much by myself with a couple, a uh, little bit of help along the way. Um, 
Barbera is actually the one grape out of Piedmont that is available in California more widely, and it is also the one that I was least sure I wanted to do at first, but I ended up deciding just looking at everything I make. I wanted one more wine to add in. Um, I make Dolcetto and a Nebbiolo, and those are definitely leaned out to the lightest edge that I can make them. Um, and there's something about having a chewier, denser, savory side of red as well that I felt like I lacked. And with the city that Barbera has, it's, I mean, it's just freakishly high acid if you choose to let it stay there and not, you know, I've actually heard about people in California deacidifying the Barberas, which makes me go cringe. But, um, so I, I took that acid and I tried to then build as much substance into that acid as I could by keeping all the stems in and building a tannic structure and really pushing that spice level. Yeah, and the the tannic structure really sticks out to me on this because you're, when tasting Barbera, especially young Barbera, um, the grape itself doesn't have a lot of, mm-hmm. of grape tannin in, in the skins. And usually the only way you get tannin in it is if someone's throwing it into like a, some heavily charred new French oak or something. And then you can pick that out on the nose. You're like, oh, this is going to be like an oaky, weirdly tannic Barbera. But you don't get the oaky character. And it's just a beautiful kind of ongoing long texture of a, a nice uh, tannin in the front and then again lots of acid in the wine too yeah it's actually I think speaking of oak I think that speaks back to talking about Calatal before um, and kind of all of what we're here doing in a way but the problem with so many of these varieties has been using a ton of new oak in my opinion there's that's to me that's one thing that's very not Italian and you know to have taken a wine like the Barbera and then put into a bunch of new oak, you would have basically lost the purity of why it's Barbera. And then, um, I think that's one big change that both of us two producers are doing. I think most people who are making Italian varieties now are seeing just this, maybe a better sense of, uh, holding on to a better sense of purpose behind the varietals. And now we have in our glass, the Nebbiolo. What is the purpose behind this varietal? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Nebbiolo is, a. I mean, that's... We have the 2012 Nebula. Yeah, so this is the 2012 Nebula. This is the first wine uh, that I knew I'd make, and I also was so unsure about would this work in California, but that's kind of exactly why I wanted to do it. Um, and I wanted to find that ethereal side to Nebbiolo, which is, I think, what I had never tasted in California. Um, and so to do that, I just started with experimenting. This is three different pieces that then ended up being blended back to try to learn what works here because we don't know what works here yet and so we should be exploring as we go um and i by happenstance just liked how the three pieces work together in the end i mean what do you mean by the three pieces are they three different sure. clones three vineyard plots so it's three it actually is three different clones uh all suitcased in um unknown exactly but there's one from the maquette uh biotype one from the lampio biotype and one suitcase that he just calls bra because it came from the town of bra and we don't even know what it is which is pretty neat uh and then um when I made it, I did three different pieces, so I just didn't know what would work because it's again, as we talked about before, we're we're in California, we're not in Campania for their wines or or Piedmont for my wines. So you got to respect the origins, but you also have to expect respect the origins of being in California as well. And so to do that, I felt like well, let's do three different pieces and see what seems the best. Um, one was uh, with stems and pressed a little early. One was pressed just at dryness, and one was extended maceration, which means basically leaving the wine on skins for an extended amount of time for a few months. Um, I feel like those three pieces actually show in the wine. There's different layers, and they all come back together. Yeah, it really gives a, just you know, just like your Barbera, just a lot of textural complexity to the wine that that 
just just make me want to order a pizza from Roberta's <laughs> and so badly. Uh, the wine's delicious, and uh, I think you've, uh, you know, it's. I think that I found when I speak with other industry professionals about Nebbiolo in California, there are some really like charged up feelings about it because people love Barolo so much, love Barbaresco so much that uh, when growing the, this grape, they're like, well. It's got to be, you know, as good as like really good Barolo. Otherwise, why, why even bother? Uh, but uh, this, I mean, I, I, I love this wine, and uh, it, obviously, this is a 2012 that you can drink. You can drink it sooner. Um, do you, I don't know? Have you have you come across any of that kind of like Nebbiolo back? I think people are protective over Nebbiolo. It's, Nebbiolo, especially exactly, yeah. and more, more well, than think, the other grapes. I think we had this the same conversation until maybe ten years ago about Pinot Noir. Okay. And, and people don't even bring up Burgundy anymore in California. I'd agree with that. And I think that's actually, on one hand, you maybe want to shy from it because, oh, it won't work outside. It's the one grape that won't work outside of its, you know, origins. Uh, that actually leads me to say, why? Like, why not? Like, we haven't tried. We should be trying. And maybe maybe you're correct. Maybe it won't work out outside of Piedmont. Needs be, won't work in California. But we don't know that until we actually take a lot of attempts and uh, explore well, I think you're you're definitely proving that that it has a place outside of uh, outside of Piedmont. That wine is absolutely delicious and uh, a unique, I think, a definitely unique taste on it. Um, all right, so we're going to finish on the Rime Ionico. Um, I guess the the wine that started it off for uh, for both of you guys. It is, yeah. So we got the, a, a phone call from a friend, as Ryan was saying, who uh, had put in Alianico down in Paso Robles. Beautiful site in the Temple Wing Gap um, uh, on a thread of uh, limestone down there. I think um, a perfect uh, place for Alianico. It comes in, uh, you know, uh, like 3.1, 3.2 pH, amazing acidity, great structure. And so, uh, unbeknownst to us, we said, yeah, well, you know, we'll do one ton. We were starting rhyme. And so in came the fruit. We thought, oh, we'll have fun. We'll play. And we were so excited by, um, the fruit and the vineyard that we, uh, continued, um, making it and, and thus begin our project. Um, but, uh, we whole cluster ferment to this. So hundred percent whole cluster, uh, fermentation and then press, uh, two neutral barrels. We don't use any new oak in the, in the winery. And uh, age it for three years in barrel. Wow. So tell us about the uh, origins of using whole cluster with Ionico, because um, I know of, of only one other person who's, uh, who's doing this. And I think that a lot of people are afraid of using uh, whole cluster, which means using uh, all of the stems included in it, because Ionico by itself is a grape that has pretty massive tannins. Um, or, or can have really big tannins, and adding the stems will add another type of tannin to it. What made you think to to do this in the first place, and what what are the results? What have you have you uh, uh, found that how it affects the wine? I think with the big tannic wines like that, it it uh, it's kind of assumed as a given that using stems would be bad, um, but uh, we like st- we use, we leave the stems in in most of our wines actually. Um, we've always been drawn to, to wines like that, um, the more savory side of wines. Uh, I've been working with Pax Maley for nine years and at the time in 07, just, I mean, everything was whole cluster. So I was like, well, not too much of a stretch to do the Alianico whole cluster. Um, and it brings a tremendous lift to the aromatics, an incredibly spicy wine. 
Um, and then in terms of the, the kind of tactile qualities of the stems, they they add. There's there's tannin in stems. Um, it adds to the tannin and kind of broads, uh, kind of pulls out the the tannin of the wine. Rather, uh, it's more of a complete kind of mouth filling um, structure to the wine, where grape tannin can be so so front loaded and um, kind of sharp and grippy. This makes bigger, chewier tannins. Yeah. Uh, Almost like when uh, people, you've ever seen the people who can like walk on spikes, right? <laughs> if there was just one spike or two, that would go right through their feet. But if there's a ton of them, it balances that, mm-hmm. it balances it out, and it 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 spreads it spreads it out. So when you have both the grape tannin and some stem tannin and everything together, it fills it all out and makes this really kind of uplifting and and balanced, complete texture to to the tannin. I agree. That's a great way to put it. All right. Uh, well, on that note, <laughs> we're going to finish up because I want to leave on a high note. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, guys, thank you so much. It's been really a pleasure a pleasure to have you. I mean, one of the things that I really love about your wines, other than the fact that they're truly delicious, uh, is that um, you guys bring a, a curiosity um, to to winemaking and uh, and create wines that, that are really they're unique and singular and, and make, you, make you think about, about wine while it's just fun and delicious to, to drink them as well. So thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Joe. It's been, it's been yeah, great. Thank you for having Thanks, us. Joe. Great. Thanks, guys. And I also want to thank our producers, Jory Morales and Jack Inslee, um, and a special thanks to Polliner Imports um, because they both uh, bring in these wines. And this has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.